the St. Thomas the Doubter podcast. My name is Mark, and I'm the pastor of the Congregation of St. Thomas the Doubter, an independent ecumenical congregation for all people that embraces holy doubt, the importance of grace, and the power of solidarity in community. You can find out more about our congregation online at www.stthomascongregation.org. This podcast offers the scripture lessons and sermons from our Sunday evening services. In the future, it may also be a place for conversation and discussion on various issues of religion and faith. Today's episode is from the service for February 5th, 2023, the fifth Sunday after the Epiphany. The scripture lessons are Isaiah 58, verses 1 through 12, and Matthew 5, verses 13 through 20. The sermon is entitled, A Light That Shall Break Forth Like the Dawn. We hope you enjoy this episode. Our scripture lesson tonight comes, well, two scripture lessons, first from the the gospel, I'm sorry, the book of Isaiah, and then the gospel according to Matthew. Our first lesson is from Isaiah chapter 51, verses 1 through 12. Shout out, do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Announce to my people their rebellion, to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet day after day they seek me and delight to know my ways, as if they were a nation that practiced righteousness and did not forsake the ordinance of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Why do we fast, but you not see? Why humble ourselves, but you do not notice? Look. You serve your own interest on your fast day and oppress all your workers. Look, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to strike with a wicked fist. Such fasting as you do today will not make your voice heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose a day to humble oneself? Is it to bow down the head like a bulrush and to lie in sackcloth and ashes? Will you call this a fast day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I choose, to loose the bonds of injustice, to undo the thongs of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house, when you see the naked to cover them and not to hide yourself from your own kin? Then your light shall break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up quickly. Your vindicator shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer you. You shall cry for help and he will say, here I am. If you remove the yoke from among you, the pointing of the finger, the speaking of evil, if you offer your food to the hungry and satisfy the needs of the afflicted, then your light shall rise in the darkness and your gloom be like the noonday. The Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your needs in parched places and make your bones strong, and you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters never fail. Your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to live in. A reading from the Gospel according to St. Matthew, chapter 5, verses 13 through 20. 
Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come not to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter, not one stroke of a letter will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Ooh, and I, sorry, I'm missing a verse. <laughs> It didn't get copied on the thing. Oops. Um, sorry. You have heard that it was said to those long ago, don't commit murder. And all who commit murder, nope, sorry. Backwards. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt loses its saltiness, how will it become salty again? It's good for nothing except to be thrown away and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city on top of a hill can't be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. Instead, they put it on top of a lampstand and it shines on all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before people so they can see the good things you do and praise your father who is in heaven. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So any reasonably successful activist, any reasonably successful uh, person with uh, some kind of program or public uh, action has a coherent message. In fact, this goes beyond people who are involved in political or social activism. Good corporations have good messaging. Good comedians have a kind of shtick that you know and are familiar with. And so there is a consistency in the messaging that people understand. For example, People know that when they listen to the comedy of George Carlin, they're going to hear a lot about the nonsense that people spew at you and try to manipulate you into doing things. When you go and hear a speech by Bernie Sanders, you're going to hear about banks. And when you see certain companies advertising, you know there's going to be a little bit of snark, a little bit of humor in there. That's the consistency of messaging that helps make those messages more effective. If someone gives a speech where they're all over the place and they're just kind of kitchen sinking it, it's very hard to walk away with a sense of mission, a sense of purpose. And we see this very phenomenon so clearly in the writings of the prophets and in the teachings of Jesus. It's very clear when we look at the writings of the prophets, especially in the late kingdom period and the, and the exilic period, that there is a focus on proper worship of God. And the refrain 
always seems to go something like this. It always seems to start with pointing out that the people are very busy engaged in a lot of religiosity. They're, they're fasting, they're going to worship services, they're offering sacrifices, they're doing all kinds of things that would strike the average observer as being fairly religious. That is, all the things that define a person as a religious person are what these people are doing, right? Big public displays of faith. And yet, it always comes up wanting because those displays, those public displays of faith are not accompanied by the commitment to the covenant that produces those displays of faith. That is, the children of Israel were given the law at Sinai, and it had a lot of things that they were supposed to do. Festivals they were to observe, rituals they were supposed to go through, sacrifices they were supposed to make, all manner of rite, all manner of ceremony, all manner of ritual. In fact, all kinds of specific duties are spelled out for the priests and for the Levites and for the family members and this and that and all this kind of thing is spelled out. But all of those things were done as a way of performing and recognizing the heart of the covenant that was made at Sinai. And that covenant was that God would be faithful to Israel and Israel would engage in justice and righteousness. So what the prophets are always going on about, their shtick, if you will, their sort of center piece of their message is you're doing all the ritual stuff and you're not doing any of the stuff that's at the heart of this agreement. You're not feeding the naked and the hungry and clothing the naked. You're not taking the homeless into your homes. You're not doing anything to meet the needs of the people who are depending on you. Instead, you're fasting so you can look better than others, and you're using it as an opportunity to get into fights with other people. And I'm pretty sure Isaiah doesn't say what those fights are, but I bet you they're about how holy everyone is. I bet you it's a kind of I'm holier and I'm doing my holiness better than you are kind of fight, because these are the kind of fights we religious folks like to have when we're being hypocrites. Isaiah is critiquing the people, criticizing them for engaging in showmanship of religion and not embracing the fundamental aspects of what the faith is. He's mocking them for engaging in these outward displays and then oppressing their workers. Fine, you're nice and religious and you're not paying your employees a living wage? Fine, you're putting all kinds of oil on your head, you're offering sacrifices, you're fasting, and yet you're walking by the poor and needy in the street. You've got it all backward. Do the righteous thing. Right? And in fact, mockingly quotes the people as saying, why isn't God answering our prayers? And God says, I'll tell you when I'll answer your prayers, when you do what I told you to. When you do these things, then you will find I am with you. Then you will find that we are together. And then not only will your prayers be answered, but you will be like a light bursting forth in the dawn. You will be 
the builder of cities. You will be the repairers of the breach. Now, this is powerful language in the late exilic period, because those who are returning from exile into the land of Israel are encountering a Jerusalem that has been destroyed, a temple that has been knocked down, city walls that have huge holes and breaches in them. And here is this language, when you do justice, you will be repairers of the breach. You will plug those holes, not just in the walls of the city, but in the life of your community. You will bind up your community. You will be a builder of places to live in. This is the prophetic critique. There is little else the prophets talk about. It seems like all we really ever get is this message in one way or another. We In the Bible study this week, we looked at Micah's version of this, where Micah brings a lawsuit against the people of Israel by God, alleging breach of contract for not actually performing on the obligations of the covenant. We see this in Amos. We see this in Hosea. We see it in Jeremiah, in Isaiah. It's in all the prophets. The why are you spending all your time on the easy, religiously looking stuff and not actually doing what I'm asking you to do? That's the fast I want from you. Take care of each other. Do justice. Live righteously. Everything else is just window dressing. And we see the same kind of thing in Jesus' teachings. When Jesus says that he has not come to abolish the law and the prophets, that it speaks to a number of different levels. One, the law and the prophets is sort of first century shorthand for what we would call the Old Testament. The Hebrew Bible had not yet been formalized. The rabbis had not yet agreed on what the texts of the Hebrew Bible, our Old Testament, would be. But there was a general sense that it was at the very least the Torah, and then the books of the prophets, and then the Psalms, and maybe a few other things. It was still in the process of being formed. So one level, when Jesus says the law and the prophets, he says, in effect, the Old Testament. It's not going anywhere. On another hand, He's talking also about the continuing authority of the witness of those scriptures and that that prophetic voice. He's not coming to abolish that. He's coming to fulfill that. He is coming to flesh it out, if you will. And so what he does then is he immediately starts talking about the things the prophets talk about. He says, You're salt, so flavor the world. You're light, so illumine the world. In fact, you don't put a light on a lampstand, or you don't put a light under a bushel basket, you put it on a lampstand so other people can see it. You build a city on a hill, the reason you do that is so that people can see it, so that it can be a light to the nations and to share what it has with the world. On some level, it's beautiful that Jesus recapitulates the prophetic message and that he provides even more metaphor and rich imagery to go with it. On another hand, it's really disappointing that he has to keep saying what the prophets had been saying for six 
centuries. He'd still say the same thing today. I mean, this has been the main prophetic critique ever since. We still see it because the phenomenon, the desire to make religion an individual thing that we can do and, and we can do easily with some fairly simple rites and rituals and performances is always there. We imagine that holiness is about some kind of internal cleansing, some kind of internal preparation that's between us and God and doesn't really involve anyone else. On some level, that's true. There is an internal aspect to holiness that is important. John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist tradition, led a movement that is in many ways referred to as a pietistic movement. That is, it was a movement rooted in a kind of an experience of faith, a very emotional, heart-filled experience of faith. It shared something in common with the Moravians, with whom who, whose missionaries he was close uh, colleagues with. It shares something, interestingly, with the Hasidic movement in Judaism. It's a religious movement that is about the experience of God in the heart and the transformative power that that has. But Wesley understood that that experience was meant then to lead us toward what he called sanctification. That is, it didn't stop with that powerful experience of God. That was the beginning. The rest of one's life in faith was a process of sanctification, of growing and holiness. And Wesley spoke of two kinds of holiness. He said there was the personal holiness, that is, the things that we would recognize stereotypically as being holy, refraining from vice, saying your prayers, observing your religious duty, things like that. But then he spoke of another kind of holiness, what he called social holiness. And in one of his speeches, in one of his uh, writings, he was addressing the question of whether it was possible to be a Christian solitary. That is, could you just be a Christian as like a monk off in a cave somewhere? And Wesley minced no words in sharing his opinion on this. Wesley said that in his mind, this was not a, a life, a Christian life consistent with the gospel. He said, the gospel knows nothing of solitary religion. And that holy solitary is made about as much sense as holy adulterers did. In fact, he went on to say that the gospel of Christ knows of no gospel but social, of no holiness but social holiness. What Wesley was saying was that our faith is meant to be lived out and to be shared and to have an effect on the world, that it wasn't just us getting our ticket punched for the afterlife or feeling like we had attained some kind of personal introspection and personal purity and the rest of the world was left to its own devices. The whole point of this transformation of the self was that the world itself would be transformed. 
this was an idea that at the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century became what was known as the social gospel. It was a movement that went to address social issues like tenement housing and child labor and women's suffrage and fair labor laws and other things like that. It was this idea that all the prayer in the world didn't accomplish anything and all the personal transformation of individuals didn't accomplish anything if those individuals had to live in communities that were not safe or conducive to righteous living. That is, if you're living in a community beset by poverty and injustice, your individual holiness is kind of tenuous because the temptations and the necessities of your living will undo whatever personal things you have. The line that was often used to describe some of these neighborhoods in New York City, for example, was that Hell's Kitchen was not a place, a safe place for saved souls. There needed to be a transformation of the entire community, of the entire structure. That's what we're talking about when we say, let your light shine for others. It's not so that people can see how great you are, that you're shining. It's so that you illuminate the path, that you lend light to others, that you give light in those places where it's dark and where there's hopelessness and despair. The light is meant to be shared. The city on the hill isn't an enclave. See, we have this feeling about the church. I remember on vacation one time, I came across a church, I want to say it was in Berkeley Springs, West Virginia, a little storefront church, and it was called The Refuge. And I remember thinking, I understand the appeal. I understand the appeal of saying, Hey, Christians, come hide out in here. <laughs> come in here. But the church isn't meant to be a refuge. It's meant to be an embassy. Now, to be fair, people do take refuges in embassies, but the purpose of an, of an embassy, its mission is to go out. Its mission is to proclaim something in the presence of the rest of the world. Our churches, our communities are not meant to be little inward-looking gatherings where we can satisfy our, our piety and our religious obligation through these acts of religiosity. They are meant to be transformative of the world itself. That's what light brings. That's the light that's called to be shared. So this is really the heart of it. I mean, this is the shtick, if you will, of the gospel. This is the coherent message at the heart of it that tragically so many have lost sight of. So many today are intent on proving their religiosity by tweeting out Bible verses or by taking public stands as public Christians and yet not committing to anything remotely like the gospel or to the prophetic message. Faith is about more than that. That's the heart of this message. 
And so sometimes we can lose despair. Where's God in all of this? But God has told us, I'm where they're taking care of people. <laughs> I'm where they're reaching out and extending justice and liberating the oppressed and providing equity for the workers. That's where I am. When you do that, then you'll say, here is the Lord. That's when you will know. It's not because you've bribed God into showing up. It's because that's where God is. And you finally showed up where that was. It's so tempting to be inward looking. It's easier. In some ways, it's more comforting. But the gospel has always been a little risky. Jesus knew that when he set out after John got arrested. He knew what he was getting himself into. He knew that there would be challenges ahead. But the purpose of it, to share the love of God with a broken and hurting world, to work, to establish that justice and that righteousness, that's the brand. That's the main theme. A theme that we apparently need to be called back to time and time again. But when we find it, we become capable of shining forth light like the dawn. Thank you for listening to this episode of the St. Thomas the Doubter podcast. For more information about the podcast and our congregation, visit www.stthomascongregation.org. Thanks again, and we hope you will join us again soon. Thank you.